Hello and welcome to the very first podcast here at Diane Gender Solicitors. I'm Neil Denny, one of the divorce solicitors here with Diane Genders, and today I'm going to be talking with Alan Searle. Alan Searle is a behavioural psychologist focusing on performance in various sectors. He helps individuals to control and understand their mental focus in order that they can be effective in any circumstance. Alan, thank you for joining us. You're welcome. Nice to be here. Uh, we're going to be talking over the next three programs about some of the challenges that may face people going through divorce and separation from that behavioral uh, awareness element. And our thinking here is that we, our goal is to equip uh, these folk uh, just with an awareness of some of the processes and challenges that they might be uh, encountering uh, as they go through that journey. Yes. Um, we've got three kind of headings uh, for each of those programs. So the first one, this program, we're going to be looking at identity. Uh, in the next program, we're going to be looking at the emotional hijack. What is it? What happens? And what can we do about it? And then in our third and final program, we're going to be talking about mental toughness. Um, okay. So first of all, looking at identity. Um, what, what, what is identity? What, how important is it to us? Identity is a very complex issue when you get down to the roots of it, really. Um, if you go back and look at the research through psychology back into the 70s, uh, it uh, originated very strongly with Tajfel and Turner, who looked at various different experiments of young children going out to different camps. Uh, it was called Snakes and Robbers, the, the actual experiment that they mm. carried out. And what they found was people, when they're put into different camps, do like to start to challenge each other. And this is seems to be an innate thing that people do. When they are split into two different groups, they will quite quickly turn into a competitive role and competitive mood. And this can often lead to sabotage um, within the experiment that they carried out. They did things like stealing knives and stealing equipment to make mm. the other team lose. So when you put that into context of um, divorce or separation, you can quite easily find that the male or female will slip into this competitive type of social identity. Hmm. Now, social identity itself really has two main sections, a social identity and a personal identity. Hmm. The social identity is complex in itself in the way that people may feel that they belong to a certain group. Now, that group that they belong to, once separated from, can leave people with a sense of loss. So, so this group might be within a community, within a neighborhood, or uh, within an organization, a group of friends? Absolutely. It could be the local pub that they go to. It could be the sports club that they go to. It could be that the uh, man and wife play golf at the same golf club. And once the separation is going through, what they will find is they will have sides that they go to or sides that they belong to. And if they have a circle of friends that have introduced them to that circle or that club or that pub or whatever it may be, it could be that the person that is leaving the relationship as such is excluded from that group, hmm. which will then add an extra pressure and brings in the personal identity. Hmm. That person then needs to seek what is their personal identity. Personal identity really comes down to your inner values of how you perceive yourself. So we join groups and clubs. We have our children join things like scouts mm. because we like them to be connected to that social group. As adults, as uh, man and wife, as, as partners, we join clubs such as golf, going to the pub together, whether it be a bingo night or dominoes, whatever it may be. And once that personal identity is then lost, the person that is then looking for the personal personal side to come back again is then faced with a lack of maybe self-esteem or confidence 
because they've then got to embark on a new journey of mm. finding a personal identity, of finding possibly a new social group. So, uh, so, so individuals, I, I, I'm thinking quite naturally, you know, you and I are men and, uh, you and I were talking that there are many resources out there which tend to look at, uh, women within divorce and, and how they can be provided for. I produce some of those resources myself. Um, so if, if we think about men in particular, the challenge that they face at the end of a relationship and let's say a divorce, it isn't just going to be the, the the process of the divorce itself. It's going to be these identity issues as well. Yes, very much so. Um, men and women tend to go out together and enjoy their social aspects together. And stereotypically, I suppose, you have this relationship where the man and the woman are, are joined together. And the man can feel, to some degree, that he's lost a very big part of what he belongs to. Not that the woman belongs to him, mm. but he belongs to that relationship. Mm. So he then needs to find a way to substitute that sense of loss, if you like. Um, going through any separation can be akin to bereavement, can be akin to losing somebody. And when you lose somebody, you do need to go through a cycle where you have to refine yourself, you have to regain yourself. And that can be very difficult for men sometimes because generally speaking, we're not that good at showing our emotions. And when we were talking earlier, you were saying about this, this cycle of bereavement, and you said that, um, the, that process, that cycle, you know, as a kind of starting point can be up to two years. Yes. The Kubler-Ross curve, um, in the sense of grief is a, a, a standard sort of two year cycle. Um, after about 18 months, you may find that, um, you, you start, if it's, say you've been widowed, you may start that you're looking for seeking new relationships and that kind of thing. So there is a sort of a two-year cycle that people need to go through. Mm. So if you then connect that to divorce or trauma of any sort, this cycle, this Kubler-Ross cycle, does have a curve that needs to be gone through. Mm. And acceptance of that happening is something that can be quite difficult related to any kind of trauma. Uh, yeah, I mean, certainly when I meet with a client, let's say I meet with a man who's uh, just learned that his uh, partner is leaving or he's decided that uh, he's got to leave for whatever reason, I often come uh, against uh, almost a denial that, you know, this that there is this curve, this expectation. Their expectations seem to be, well, this happened a few weeks ago or, you know, or I'm over it already. Uh, and one of the challenges that not just myself but other divorce practitioners have is, in trying to navigate with this client and, and you know the those processes that they're going through and that that grieving process yes very much so there's other research as well that supports life-changing events um Holmes and Ride did some research around the similar type of uh year as Kubler-Ross and things like being widowed Mm -hmm. uh, maximum on the scale, if you like, you score a hundred points. So oh, this is the stress league. It isn't is it? the stress league. Yes. Yeah. So you getting divorced can be around sort of the 50 to 60 mark. And depending mm -hmm. on what other life events you've had builds up these levels of stress. Mm -hmm. But bearing in mind, divorce is a two way street. You could be happy about the divorce or you could be sad about the divorce, depending on which side of the fence you're sitting on. Mm -hmm. However, you've still got to go through that period of a traumatic event because even if you are happy about the divorce you are still going to go through a sense of trauma mm. and that's where the first initial shock period kicks in 
That's the first process of the Kubler-Ross curve. It's the surprise of the event, if you like. Now, even if you've built up to the point where you are the one that's wanting to leave, facing that moment in time where you say, I am leaving, is a highly stressful and emotive event. Mm. And the shock that your body goes through, it's not necessarily shock like you won the lottery. Oh, wow, my numbers are come up. Mm. It's the shock of reality that you've got to face something that's very difficult in life that you're going to have to get through and could take a period of time to go through. This is an important point, isn't it? That uh, our American uh, colleagues, for example, frequently talk about the leave. What, what have they got? They've got the lever and the levy, which are just horrible labels, I think. Yes. Um, but even for the the person who is instigating the separation, uh, I think there's an understanding that they may well have been going through this bereavement, grieving the end of the relationship, the marriage maybe, for whether it's the eighteen or eighteen months or the two years leading up to that point where they disclose to their partner that it's over. Absolutely. And that first initial part of that that cycle, it could be that they've gone through 6, 12, 18 months of denial, mm -hmm. that the relationship does need to end. And that denial process will be looking for reasons why it shouldn't end, looking for reasons what's gone wrong, why has it gone wrong, how's it gone wrong, and also looking for evidence in the sense of how can this be true. And that denial process is really the biggest part of accepting what's to come next. So if you are the, to use the American phrase, leave you've still got to go through the process of the denial of accepting that you are going to go to your partner and say, I am sorry, but I want to get out of this relationship. Mm. If you're on the other side, it could be a complete shock that this news is arriving. So after that shock, the denial will be possibly harder to take because you've then got to really search for the reasons of why does this person want to leave me. Yes, yes. And I, I th this is interesting as well because we see those cases where one party has left uh, a marriage and, and we can still see denial in their part that this is their choice or their decision, if you like. Yes. Which can then lead to very complicated areas, particularly when we're trying to work with them and getting them to respond to us without being defensive themselves. Yeah, and that's a, an interesting part because what's leading into there from the denial is really the frustration, uh, the recognition that things are different. And when you are trying to go through that process with the client and getting them to understand and accept that this is actually happening, this is part of their life that they are going through, the frustration then of that actually kicking in will be part of the circle, will be part mm -hmm. of the cycle that they've got to go through. Um, accepting that things are different can be very hard and it can make people angry and it can then bring up other emotions. And those emotions can then lead to other various different mechanisms of coping. And it's that bit that then becomes difficult and being able mm -hmm. to rationalize those emotions with the um, problem solving part of the brain, if you like, instead of the emotional part of the brain is something that is, is hard to control and deal with mm -hmm. and can quite easily then slide into areas of depression. Mm. Uh, and depression being one of those other areas. Let's, let's just spend a, a moment on anger. I mean, it'd be stereotypical to suggest that men are angry in divorce. Um, and, and of course, it isn't exclusively men. Anger is an inevitable part of this coming to terms with a, a traumatic event, such as the end of the relationship. Uh, and, and it strikes me that in society today, we, we, we're fairly damning of anger. I've had so many cases where, for example, uh, a wife will criticize a husband for being angry 
uh, and uh, and you know sometimes this is the, the grounds of divorce itself, or sometimes the wife has instigated the uh, divorce proceedings, and then it is somehow surprised that that this creates an angry response. Now it strikes me that the anger is inevitable, and that, that we should be a bit more uh, expectant of it. That we shouldn't be surprised when it's there, and in, instead find ways to deal with the anger. Yeah, very much so. It's it's quite again links to the social identity type um, aspect where the world culturally has made us socially acceptable. We wear clothes because mm. that's what the world and society says that we do. If you go to other parts of the world, they don't wear clothes and they would look at us and see us as being uh, strange species that are wearing shirts and ties. Mm. If you go back further to early evolutionary sort of stages, men were typically the hunter-gatherers. Men were the people that went out and let their rage go because they had to go out and do the kill. Mm. So men, in essence, are possibly more prone to the anger being displayed. Whereas women generally, and this is a generalization and, and, and not to be taken as carte blanche one sure. or the other, yeah. um, but are more empathetic in nature. And again, if you go back in time to prehistoric times, women were the ones that were giving birth and looking after the children and raising the children, and the men were the ones that were going out fighting, going out to wars. Even when we go back to recent wars, there's still a high majority of men that join the forces. Um, women are coming through now, and there's more of an understanding that there's a difference in the gender and, and, and that women are more capable, and rightly so, equal to men in, in that way. But men still have that gene, if you like, that fighting gene, mm -hmm. that warrior gene where they want to go out. And that can be a really difficult emotion to restrain and hold down. Mm. And certainly thinking about how that, um, you say about the hunter-gatherer and you know how, how that would... Uh you know, be triggered within within a separation. Perhaps, you know, if someone else is moving into what used to be this person's house, this home, uh, you know, and, you know, thinking in, in very almost animalistic uh, anthropological terms, you know, taking their partner, as you say, not that the partner belongs to them, but just intruding in that relationship. Absolutely. I mean, as humans, we are animals. We are a species. It's only society that have made us the top of the tree, if you like, in the sense of the animal kingdom. But really, it does come down to being animal and animal instinct. And animal instinct takes over. If you look at other species of animals, lions, for example, the lion will come in and kill the cubs of the lioness because they don't want that particular gene to survive. So if a man sees another man moving into what is t technically his domain, his territory, his house that he's paid for and he's built and he's worked for and grafted all those years and built up something with his wife, to see somebody else moving in and taking over that role and taking over what he perceives to be his is something that would create a, a big frustration hmm. and a big sense of anger and that is mine and why should you have it hmm. and isn't it funny because we were talking about social acceptance and such like and I, i'm feeling slightly uncomfortable in talking in these terms because inevitably uh i i think our current modern culture tries to uh, almost deny that there, there should be that trigger response that that you know if if that animalistic anger response is provoked then then that is something to be criticized for almost as if uh, the other person has lost control or is diminished as a result it is absolutely and learning how to control those emotions at certain times is very important in a pub situation you wouldn't just 
create a fight for the sake of creating a fight because society tells us that we shouldn't. Mm. In a divorce situation, obviously there is a need to be able to control those emotions and take those emotions out that we feel in different ways, in positive ways. Mm. To use Freudian terms, we would project it in a different way or, or use it in a, in a uh, reaction formation is actually the, the, the term that he uses. So if you feel like anger, you will then go to the gym. So in essence, you are using a defense mechanism that is a positive defense mechanism because mm. you're taking your anger and frustration out at the gym, which is then making you fit. Um, if you use the example to young children that uh, fight with the, in the playground and that sort of thing, Prince Nazim is a very good example. At the age of 12, he got into a lot of fights, got into a lot of trouble. His trainer saw him. He took him into a boxing ring. He taught him how to box, and he used his anger and his aggression in the right way. So it's all about learning how and when we use the aggression. The key is not letting the aggression build up inside. Mm. Because if we let the aggression and the anger build up inside, that's when we are potentially at a point where we are unable to control when that aggression will come out and when it will manifest itself. I invariably say to clients that they should expect there to be a degree of depression. Uh, you know, this, this is a shock. Uh, my limited understanding of these issues is that depression is quite a natural part of that response to a shock or traumatic situation. Yes, very much so. Your self-esteem may drop, your confidence levels may drop. Um, your feeling of acceptance within the social network might drop, especially if you're excluded from the social net that network that you were in, because that will then affect your personal identity. Mm -hmm. So your personal identity is intrinsically connected to your social identity. And if you are a member of a golf club or a sports club or a pub or whatever it may be that, that you're part of, if you then are almost uh, castrated from that mm -hmm. social activity or experience, then you've got to find something new and you've got to exchange it for something new. And that can be very difficult. That can be very challenging to go out there, especially if you're middle-aged and you've spent 20 years within the same social group, to then start to look at finding a new life. Mm. It can be a very daunting task. And that's when people can be very reclusive and, and decide to stay indoors and shut the curtains and watch TV and maybe not necessarily want to challenge or face or see the world. Because, of course, that social group could be the family unit itself, couldn't it? Absolutely, especially if there's children involved. Uh, you've, you've got this bargaining going on between who has what and, and, and that kind of thing. And unfortunately, in these type of situations, children can be used in the wrong way. Mm. Um, we do go through a point where there's decision making to be done or experimental type areas within the curve of what the ch child might want. So it could be that one parent will buy the better pair of trainers mm. or want to bribe the child onto going to go into a better holiday. And depending on the financial situation of whichever parent it is, it can be a very tough time for the child and it can be a very tough time for the families. Mm. I do know of people who have lost their parents when they were quite young. So when they then married, the parents or their mother and father-in-law became their parents hmm. and for many years were adopted almost as their parents. And when you're adopted into a family situation like that and then you're going through a divorce and suddenly those perceived parents no longer want anything to do with you, that family unitedness really is ripped apart. Yeah. So not only have you lost your social identity, which in turn knocks your personal identity, you've also lost your family identity, mm. which can leave you very stranded, mm. especially if you've moved or relocated to be closer to the other person's family 
to be more supportive of their parents if they've got older or anything like that and they've got grandchildren. Oh, welcome to my world. <laughs> and you are no longer able to take the grandchildren to see who you perceive as being your parents. Alan, thank you very much. Fascinating insight into that uh, bereavement process and some of the challenges, the, the, the much broader challenges that uh, people will be facing uh, when it comes to divorce and separation. Um, horrible in one sense, but fascinatingly, that point you made at the very start about the the game playing uh, experiments that they had, it almost sounded like that that book, Lord of the Flies. Yes. But, you know, the idea that people would look to sabotage the other team and they form cliques and such like. And that just strikes me that, that we see that an awful lot. And this isn't something I'd heard of before, but we see it's an awful lot where a mother or a father may start to withhold contact, for example, or um, take certain uh, uh, things away, whether it's the TV, whether it's the, the Sky subscription, you know, these kind of things. This is all, on the base of what you're saying, entirely predictable behaviour. Yes, really is. I mean, the research that was carried out by Sharif with the Snakes and Robbers, and aptly named uh, names for, for Boy Scouts, if you like, going out into the wilderness, they did observe that behaviour. And What's more frightening as well is how people will adopt the role, if you like. So the father will possibly adopt the role of being the father and the mother will want to adopt the role of being the mother. But then both want to also adopt each other's roles because the father may want to also be more empathetic and loving and caring and cuddling to show the child that they will still be both sets mm. of parents. Likewise, the female might want to be more disciplined with their reactions to the, the child's behaviour. Um, another interesting study that was carried out, I'll not say research because it's, it's more study, was that of Milgram uh, in the early 60s, um, doing shock treatment with, with people in authority. So somebody wearing a white coat saying it shocked the person when they're asked a question. And the people didn't want to carry on giving people shocks because they genuinely thought that they were killing the person in the next room. But because there was a sense of authority in somebody telling them to do it, there was a very high percentage of people that did carry on giving the shocks. Now, the people that were receiving the shocks were actors, so nobody was harmed during this, this study. But it just shows that young children are impressionable by an authority figure. Mm -hmm. And an authority figure in a child's life isn't just police, isn't just people in a uniform, it is parents. Mm -hmm. Parents are their authority figure. Parents and grandparents as well. It's Absolutely, me. grandparents. And it strikes me the with cold dread that those authority figures could also be the lawyers or maybe the judge. And so, one spouse or the other plays out in a certain pattern because they think or they may well sense that they're being expected to do so by their lawyer or. Yes, the judge. well, that's a, a very interesting point because there's other research again by Zimbardo. Um, he carried out some, uh, again, more of an observational study in Harvard University in, in America, and he randomly assigned people to different groups. So there was people assigned to being prison guards mm. and people being assigned to guards, and uh, sorry, to prisoners. So you had prison guards and prisoners. And within a space of a few days, the prisoners took on the role of being submissive took on the role of being prisoners. And the prison guards went to the other extreme and took on the role of being prison officers and started to carry out very, very unethical things with the prisoners. Stripped them naked, got them walking up and down the corridor, kissing each other, saying silly things to each other that 
basically the prison guards thought they'd got authority to do. So if somebody is in a position where they do have a barrister that is the authority figure mm. and they, they are almost submissive to what that authority figure is telling them, by nature, people do tend to resort to it. Mm. Now, that study was carried out in the 60s. And after 10 days, it was actually Zimbardo's wife that went in just to observe how the study was going on. And Zimbardo himself, who took the position of governor, also fell into the trap of being a governor of a prisoner, prison, of, uh, prison ward, if you like. Mm. And it was his wife that really said to him, can you see what's going on here? This research, this experiment needs to stop because the people that are prisoners are being exploited, are being treated inhumanely. And it was his wife that said to him, you need to stop this now because it's gone too far. Mm. When you put that in real terms, we can see issues in like Guantanamo Bay uh, in the early 2000s, where prison guards or soldiers were holding people hostage, if you like, in their prison environment and were taking photographs of them and mm. publicising photographs of them to each other. Mm. So even though in the 60s this research was done, in the 2000s we actually saw it being played out in real life, which then does cast again that question of, of danger, if you like, of if you do have a barrister that is quite an authoritarian figure and does want a person to act a certain way, if that person is submissive enough, then they may act out of character to how they normally would be. Yeah. So in a court situation or in a negotiation situation, they may actually take on a role, which that role then becomes game-playing because it's not actually them mm. and it's not actually who they want to be. It's who they think they should be. Well, that's that's uh, really helpful because I know uh, with clients very often they, they're completely bewildered by this this person who their spouse or their partner sometimes of many years has suddenly become and they are suddenly unrecognizable to them. So so that may well go some way to explain that and also to help equip people as they're at the, the start of the journey to almost anticipate that there may be these change in characteristics and uh, that there are reasons for it, which maybe don't actually have anything to do with uh, the client, the, the person who, who I'm talking to themselves, but this is just part of that broader phenomenon yeah very uh, much alan thank you so much um we're going to be uh, speaking again in the next program on the emotional hijacking what it is uh, how it affects us and what we can do about it i look forward to speaking to you then lovely look forward to speaking to you soon thank, thank you, you.